All right, so in this series, we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're looking at him as a historical figure. And particularly what I want to focus in on is the cross. So I want to look at that sign that they put above his head, which read King of the Jews. What was that all about? So if you've been following the series, you know very well what it is that I'm talking about here. And so we've spent a lot of time so far looking at the history of the Jewish people. So Jesus is the King of the Jews. Well, who are the Jews? What is, well, who are this, who, who is this people group? that he was purportedly the king of. Uh, and so in order to understand that or to answer that question, you have to understand the history of Israel. And so that's what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks now, looking at going right back to the origins of Israel as a nation, and then sort of going through the division into the northern and southern kingdoms, and and then ultimately both of their exiles and the, the dispersion of the Northern Kingdom and basically the disappearance of those 10 tribes. And then particularly focusing in on the Southern Kingdom. These are the, this Southern Kingdom, the, the tribes of Benjamin and of Judah are the two that survive. Uh, and so these two can claim so their lineage back to Abraham. When they went into exile in Babylon, they didn't lose that identity. They were kept together as opposed to those in the North who were scattered, who ultimately just sort of intermingled with uh, all of the surrounding peoples. The two tribes in the South, they were managed to be able to stay together uh, and ultimately to to keep effectively keep the bloodline going, keep their descendancy back to Abraham. And so this is why somebody like Paul later on can say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which gives him the status of having come from Abraham. And in fact, he actually says that in 2 Corinthians, I am of, uh, I am from Abraham. I am a descendant of Abraham. And so this is where we find ourselves. And so our, we, what we got to last week was that this uh, southern kingdom, those that have been in exile in Babylon, returned, uh, or some of them returned back to Jerusalem and refounded Jerusalem. They rebuilt the wall, they rebuilt the temple, and ultimately were able to somewhat reestablish the original plan, the plan always having been to be a people, to, to be a nation, you need land, you need borders, you need to be a people group. Uh, and that's what they were. Uh, but they'd lost all of that in the exile. Uh, so they'd lost the land, they'd ultimately lost the temple. So, you know, their, their point of contact with their God, Yahweh, was gone. And so that was, all of that went away. And so these are two key uh, factors in their identity. You can't worship Yahweh without a temple, and you can't say you're a nation or a people group without land. So that that had disappeared. On their return, something of that is restored. Primarily, the temple is restored. And so we've entered into what we call the second temple era. This is sort of Israel take two. The Solomon's temple was gone. We've rebuilt a second temple uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And they're back in the land that used to be theirs, but it's not their land anymore. They're still, they're now part of the Persian Empire and they don't have a king. They're the king that was always going to be in the lineage of David, that's gone now. That king is now gone. There's no, uh, there's hope for that to be restored, but that's certainly not what is in place. In fact, they don't even have a king. What they have now is the high priest who is functioning as their leader, but always on behalf of the Persian king. And so the Persian, the Persians have um, 
enabled this person to be installed, and this is particularly the the person who is the priest is a descendant of Zadok. And if you remember, Zadok was the priest to endorse Solomon to become the uh, to to take the throne after the death of David, and so he was also from the line of Levi. So he has that heritage as being of the chosen priesthood uh, appointed to Aaron. So all of that is good. All of that's in place. And we have a descendant now of Zadok. So we're something, we've got a connection back to the original plan, which was at least to have a priest from the tribe of Levi. So that is at least there somewhat, but it's so many more of the pieces are missing. Uh, again, we're back in the land, but it's not our land. Uh, it's it's Persian land. We're just we're paying taxes to live on our what used to be ours. Uh, we've got a temple, but it's not quite the same because when Solomon's temple was inaugurated, the Shekinah glory of God was poured over it. That just wasn't the case with this second temple. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Is the point, and that's this is so the Jewish story, the the restoration of the Jewish people is not complete yet. At this stage, they're strongly holding out for that full restoration which is a king from the line of Jesse. So somebody who's a descendant of David will return and be restored as the king. The temple will uh, fully reflect the glory of God. The land will be theirs. They'll have their own borders again. Everything will be back in place as it originally was. That's when this story is going to be complete. And still, until then, we have to wait. And primary, as a priority, what we have to do while we're waiting is to not stuff up again. What happened? We we forgot about Torah. We, we forgot about the law. In fact, uh, in the last sort of generations of the original uh, nation of Judah, they completely forgotten they even had a law. Um, it, it wasn't until one of the kings came along and said, hey, what's this? And they, oh, there's this whole law about how we should be the people of God. And so that, he restored that. They completely forgot it. And so we've got to make sure that we remain faithful to this law that God has given us and live this out to the nth degree. So that's one part of the story. But then there was also what we saw last week was the diaspora. So the many Jews who were scattered through the empire who didn't return, and they have an even, even more pressure to stay true. Uh, they don't have even a temple. They don't have any land. They're living in foreign cities surrounded by all of these pagan gods. I mean, at least in the original plan of Israel, they had a land that was exclusive to Yahweh. To have a foreign god or a pagan god, you have to literally import it into that. That was where they really went wrong. They actually brought in these gods that they're unfaithful with. For the Jews living in a city like Corinth or Ephesus or Rome or wherever you might find yourself, you're actually surrounded. You're putting yourselves in the territory of the enemy. You're constantly surrounded by this. And so to worship Yahweh without a temple is much more difficult. And so that's the challenge they face. And so what they've got to do is double down on circumcision. They've got to double down on Sabbath, on kosher, on the things that they can do actively to remain faithful. These are the things that they do very, very strongly. And to help them to facilitate that, they build synagogues, they build meeting halls, which at least gives them some sense of belonging, a place they can all come together and be reminded as a community. I mean, as you know, we, we, I assume many of you who listen in a part of a church, one of the reasons why we go to church on Sunday is to be reminded of the community we're part of because it's so easy to forget that through the week. Uh, if you're the only Christian in your workplace or in your school, wherever you might be, Going to church on Sunday reminds you that you have a community. There are other people to which you belong, and you sort of 
reinforced in your faith as a result of that. And so the synagogue functions in that same way. You meet there every Saturday on the Sabbath, and your faith is reinforced. Your sense of identity and belonging to something bigger than yourself is reinforced in that place. So that's a quick recap of where we've got ourselves to. What you're trying to do is to maintain your identity in the face of, particularly for the for the diaspora in the face of uh, religious and also cultural and social pressures to conform to the groups around you in order to fit in, in order to be able to engage with the city, to engage in commerce and these things. That is always going to be a pressure. You always sort of walk in that line between maintaining your identity, but still being able to engage with the world around you. So how do you do that? And what are some of the challenges that you're going to face? Well, we've already just seen um, some of those, those challenges there. But at least under the Persian Empire, the Persians were less concerned about spreading culture. There, there wasn't really a fixed Persian culture. They were very happy to sort of adopt and um, bring into themselves many uh, the cultures of the people that they've conquered. Um, they didn't sort of come in and say, this is what it means to be Persian. They were very happy to become like those around them and appoint leaders from their from the regions, uh, and they quite enthusiastically adopted all the new ideas and 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 just sort of embraced a lot of this sort of multiculturalism. So, in a sense, there's not this sort of pressure from at least the king or from at least the empire that you're in to become like them. There's always going to be local pressures, but you don't have that sort of higher level pressure. As the Persians are concerned about keeping the peace, collecting the taxes, and are Anything after that is entirely up to you. Well, that all completely changes when we are introduced to our next empire in our story, which is the Greek Empire. All right, so one of the uh, questions or one of the issues that I sort of highlighted last week that really at least should cause us to stop and ask the question of why is this, is why when we go from the Old Testament, do we have uh, the Old Testament written in Hebrew and then some Aramaic, to when we come to the New Testament written in Greek? But more than that, not just that it's written in Greek, it's written in Greek in a Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire is a Latin-speaking empire. The, the Romans speak Latin, That's and they write in Latin, that's their language. But yet when we find the New Testament, it's written in Greek, yet there's no sense of any sort of Greek empire around in the New Testament era. So why is this? Well, what, what's going on with this Greek language? But another question I pointed, posed was, who are the Pharisees? Why do we have Pharisees? We, we, there's no mention of uh, anything like a Pharisee in the Old Testament. There's just no, there's no concept of them. And yet when we come to the Gospels, they seem to be everywhere. Like Jesus' primary opponents are these very influential, very seemingly famous, very powerful uh, Pharisees, this group of people who are adamantly opposed to everything that Jesus is doing. So who are these people? Where, where did they come from? So again, what happened in that 400 years between the writing of Malachi and of Matthew? Well, those are the key questions I want to answer today because they really inform so much of what's going on, not just in the Gospels, but in the entirety of the New Testament, who these people were, but especially the idea of the Greek language. It's much more uh, influential or it's much more important than we might consider. So to understand the Greek side of things and what influence that had, we've got to just do a quick recap of 
who the Greeks were. So all of our story so far has focused on the Middle East. It's, it's, if you look on a map, you've got the Mediterranean basin. And when you get to the eastern part, you sort of you come into areas like Lebanon and you come into uh, Israel and also sort of down through Turkey. That everything east of that is where we've been focused so far. And when we talk about the Persian Empire, that's what we're talking about. That that spans everything from the west from the western shores of the uh, sorry the eastern shores of the Mediterranean all the way out down towards the borders of of India. So that whole area has been the focus. But the world around that is doing its own thing as well. Just because the Persian Empire isn't touching other areas of the world doesn't mean that they're not doing their own thing. Uh, and so all, while all of this has been happening, so if you remember during the 500s is when the sort of the middle of the 500s of the 6th century is when Persia comes into power and their quick rise to power takes place over that second half of the 6th century. At the very same time, you have over in more the middle of the Mediterranean the whole Greek world is also happening as well. Uh, and so they're becoming kind of their own thing. They're sort of sort of um, you know developing their own culture and, and these sorts of things. They're doing their own thing. And eventually what is going to happen is that they are going to become the new empire in the Mediterranean and ultimately conquer the Persian empire. But before we get there, we have to understand who these Greeks are. One of the, I guess, primary characteristics of the ancient Greek world is, or, or certainly what they're, they're most known for, is their development of what I guess effectively becomes the Western culture in, in, in many ways. So think about names that you've heard, names like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, these great philosophers. Now, you may not know who they were or much about them, but you certainly would have heard those names. You might have heard expressions like the Socratic method or Platonic or these sorts of things. You've, you've heard about those. They, that's because these three men were, were probably the most pivotal and influential thinkers on, again, what has become the Western world. Now, we're going to spend more time maybe later on in this series having to look at some of the ways, some of their thinking, but primarily what these guys develop is what we call philosophy. Uh, the idea of philosophy is the love of wisdom, philos, love, Sophia, wisdom, the love of wisdom. So these philosophers were these great thinkers who were asking the really existential questions of who are we, why are we, where are we, what is wrong with us, what's going on, uh, you know, who are the gods, these really fundamental questions of life and, and what it means to exist as a human. It, these are the questions these guys are trying to answer. And so what that flows out into are, are broader questions of if we understand who we are, then how should we interact with one another? How should we be societies? How should we develop cities? How should we live with one another in the most harmonious and the most uh, and, and in the best possible way? So these key questions are what these guys are, are trying to figure out. And along with that, what the Greeks are really developing is a very robust understanding of who the gods are. The Greek pantheon is very highly developed, very highly articulated, and they have a really good sense of or an understanding of, of who the, they, they think the gods are. And so uh, when you come into the Greek world, it's the, the gods obviously have a lot of influence and a lot of power, but they're very, they seem to be very well understood, seemingly much better, well, what we're going to find later on with the Romans, but they've got a really strong sense of, of who the gods are and, and how they sort of interact and work with the gods as well. And so, in other words, in the, in the sense of 
are thinking, really, in the sense of uh, understanding, in the sense of knowledge and wisdom, this is what the Greeks pride themselves on. This is, they, they see themselves as being so much more sophisticated than all of the people around him. In fact, it's where we get the word barbarian from. Uh, the idea of a barbarian was somebody who doesn't speak Greek, somebody who doesn't, if you don't speak Greek, then obviously you're not sophisticated and you're not a great thinker like we are because you don't speak Greek. You therefore haven't learnt properly. And so the idea of the barbarian is you, know, you say, well, I see your mouth moving, but all I hear is bar, 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 and hence the term barbarian emerges. And so then the way that they, they do this is through education. And so education really emerges as well during this time, particularly around the time of Socrates and Plato, the idea of taking a student or taking a group of students and educating them in not just ideas, but and not just even how to think, but how to live education for the Greeks was a holistic idea. You take students and then you just walk with them, you live with them, you, you, everything you do is with these students. You don't just teach them some ideas or some philosophies or some uh, you know, principles, but you show them how to do it. The teacher is the exemplar of these ideas. And so listen to what I say, but then watch how I live it out and then imitate me and become like me in that same way. And in doing that, you're going to live the good life. You're going to ultimately live a happy and what we might call a prosperous life. So culture and, and civilization and these sort of sophisticated ideas are really emerging in the Greek world. And it's on this that they take great pride in themselves. The Greeks really have a very high sense of their achievements academically, philosophically, theologically. And so for them, um, these ideas, it's, it's not just these are good ideas for us, but this is what all humans need to hear. The problem with the whole human race, wherever you go, humans are going to be the same. And the reason why the human race or humans struggle is because they lack these ideas, they lack this understanding. And so if we could just educate them in these ideas, then they, all of all humans, all societies are going to do much better. And so that becomes something of their, their ethos, something of their sort of desire, at least for themselves, but for any who, who might also come into contact with them. So that's sort of one element of the Greek world, but also how that connects into our story is important too. The Persians are the biggest empire the world had ever seen, and the very next landmass over to their west, if, if the Persian Empire keeps going west, leaving from the shores of what is now Turkey, the next place they're going to hit is the Greek world. And of course, they knew each other. The Greeks knew that, certainly knew about the Persians who were right on their doorstep, and the Persians certainly knew about the Greeks. There'd been a lot of interaction between them. But there was no real sense that the Persians were ever going to conquer Greece. They, they had expanded a long way, but there was now, they may have, but there's no evidence that they ever thought that they were going to continue across the Mediterranean. They had the whole of the eastern shores of it, and to cross uh, over oceans and all, it, it's a much harder prospect. So, there didn't seem to be any intention of that happening. But through a series of uh, political missteps, of diplomatic missteps, they eventually do come to blows. They eventually come to war. And there's two great wars between the Persians and the Greeks. And the first one uh, the, is sort of a naval assault on 
Greece, and that's thwarted. That's pushed back. Um, it's only it's it's a smaller part of the Persian uh, fleet or p- smaller part of the Persian forces, but they're they're defeated, and it's a resounding defeat at a place called Marathon. Now, for the Greeks, this is a huge deal because you know the greatest, the heavyweight champion of the world has challenged them, and they've been able to punch back and and knock the guy out. I mean, this is huge. But for the Persians, they're like, oh, that was just that was just a little love tap. That wasn't even anything close to the sort of forces that we have. And so in retaliation 10 years later, because of course, you've got to remember the king of Persia, uh, Xerxes, he's, hey, you know, I'm a god, right? You don't mess with a god. And that to his own people makes him makes them think, well, hang on, if he got just got beaten by these Greeks over here, is he really a god? And so that sort of lowers his status somewhat. And so he has to at least get revenge. So 10 years later, they they try to they take their revenge this time they march all of their forces down up through Macedonia so again if you look on a map you go up through Turkey across what is now Istanbul down into Macedonia and rather than just just have a naval assault they they do this land march with with all of their armies now the goal is Athens Athens was ultimately the the city state that they were coming after uh, so they march their their troops south and it's it's here we get the great battle of Thermopylae so Leonidas and his 300 Spartans taking their last stand to buy time for Athens to prepare itself and ultimately for Athens to evacuate itself so that, um, that those lives would be spared. So that, that battle takes place. But it's during the course of that battle that Macedonia is really desecrated by the Persian forces. They march through Macedonia, plundering, pillaging along the way. And the, the, the Persian beef isn't with Macedonia, but in going through there and doing what they did to the, their lands, they created an enemy. Now, Macedonia wasn't in a place to fight back at that stage. This is sort of at the beginning, sort of the sort of 490 and 480 BC is the, is the second battle. Macedonia is just not in a place to retaliate against that. In fact, some of the Macedonians even side with the Persians. But they never forget this. They never forget that these Persians came and marched through their territories and, and did what they did all of those years ago. And so they vow revenge. Uh, someday, somehow, we're going to get revenge on these Persians for what these guys have done. Well, the formation of this revenge takes place under a guy by the name of Philip II. So Philip, king of Macedon, Philip II, uh, he is probably one of the most, con- probably the most consequential king of Macedonia to that point. The thing about Macedonia, Macedonia is a pretty tough terrain. It's it's a very cold climate. It's a very rocky area. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't really foster a comfortable lifestyle. So Macedonians are always very hard people. Um, they're very tough and they're not particularly educated certainly by the standards of of the Greeks and more than that Macedonia consists of lots of little tribes of people with their own kings and their own ways of doing life who are constantly at war with each other so Macedonia was never able to unite because they're constantly fighting with each other and even within their own individual tribes the worst job you can have is to be the king because if you're the king then inevitably someone's going to be trying to kill you and so kings of Macedonia would have have bodyguards stand outside their doors while they're asleep because they know that somebody's going to cut, try and cut, is going to come and try to assassinate them. So it's a, it's a tough gig to be a king. You don't really have a long life expectancy, and so that means that the Macedonians are never really able to do much. Well, along comes Philip 
the second. And he's a great diplomat. He's a great political thinker, as well as a great military strategist. He's got both of those things. And that's really the key uh, partnership. You, you want to have both of those working for you in the ancient world. You want to be a great military strategist, a great general, but also a great political thinker. And guys like Julius Caesar, that's what makes them so unique and so um powerful in their times. It's still so famous today. Well, Philip is able to unite the Macedonian tribes. He's able to bring them all under one leadership, which is his own. But then militarily, he's able to train them up to be a fantastically effective army. And particularly what he comes up with is the idea of the phalanx. So the idea where the entire forces, sort of the entire army force sort of works together in a very tight unit. And they have these long 15 foot spears that poke, that sort of stick out from this unit that they've formed for themselves. So imagine like a porcupine, that's what they're creating for themselves. And so if you charge in at, an, at this army with your horses, they're just going to be all impaled on these ex extremely long spikes. So the, the whole fighting strategy is just to hold onto these spears and stick together and nothing can touch you. So he develops this idea and be, ultimately they're invincible. They're just simply, you know, the, the, nobody can beat the Macedonians. So that's one element of his leadership. At the same time, down in Greece, so this is, uh, he comes to power in 359. At the same time, what was the heyday of Greece? So you, you times of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and these guys, that had diminished the, through several wars with the Spartans. Uh, the Greek world to the south had been really decimated. They, the, their former glory was, was all gone. And so they were a much more weakened force. They still had all of these great philosophical ideas, but the very wealthy, powerful nation that they used to be, the one that took on Persia, that's all done now. That, that, that's all gone away. So the Macedonians are, are the new power within the Greek peninsula. And so Philip is really in prime position to attack them or what he ultimately does, which is to bring them into his orbit, to bring them into his, uh, under his leadership. And there's really not a lot they can do against him because again, he's, he's now got the most powerful force, uh, certainly within that region. But there's this second thing that keeps plaguing them. It's, you know, it's 359, he's come to power. It's been, you know, somewhat nearly 150 years since the Persians had marched through Macedonia, but he hasn't forgotten that. He, he wants his revenge for what the Persians had done to the Macedonians. But more than that, he just wants a shot at the Persians. I mean, the idea of empire is that it's not enough to have an empire. You've got to have the biggest one. It's got to be bigger than the person who came before you. And if you're a powerful, uh, or at least you uh, have a very high sense of yourself as a king in a world that is surrounded by these empires you want to have your shot at it. You want to take it on. I mean, you're a great king. You're a great warrior. You've got a great army. You want to test it out. And who? the best way to test it out is to test it out against the best. I mean, if, you know, if you're a boxer, you know, you can train in boxing and you can have fights with people that are much weaker than you. That doesn't prove anything. You've got to take on the heavyweight champion of the world to prove that you're the best. And so this is always going to be the case that you want to prove yourself as a king and as a great general. And the only, the best way for that to happen is to take on the Persians. I mean, they're right there. Just go over the Bosphorus Strait or just go sort of across the, the Aegean Sea. You, you're going to have the biggest empire the world has ever seen right there. So he wants to take them on. Now, in order to do that, 
he doesn't have enough in his Macedonian forces to take on the Persian Empire and the, the biggest army the world has ever seen. He needs more allies. And so he needs to ally himself with Greece. And so that's what he sets out to do. For the rest of what becomes his life, his short life, he brings the Greeks under his uh, leadership. Uh, in the case of Athens, they, they're brought in kicking and screaming. But eventually everybody comes to realise that Philip is the one under which they need to be led because if they don't, he's going to kill them anyway. Um, they have really no choice in the matter. And look, hey, if we pull this off, we can get the spoils of the Persian Empire. So, you know, we stand to gain a lot by doing this. And so they're, they're sort of eventually all come on board. And, well, as far as Philip's concerned, he's ready to go. So it's 336 BC and Philip has his armies ready, he's got all the Greek people behind him, it's time to go. It's time to to have his shot at the Persians. Unfortunately, in that same year, he's murdered, as all of these Macedonian kings end up being. Um, as it turns out, he's at a wedding, and one of his young male lovers, who he's pushed aside for a new male lover, is... Well, he's angry. Um, he's he's jaded at the fact that he's been pushed aside for this new guy, and so he proceeds to assassinate Philip at this wedding. Now, how does he get away with assassinating Philip, the king of Macedon, in such a public setting? Well, because he's still he's this little weak little boy that's like, well, you know, he's he's, he's nothing to worry about. You know, he's an ex lover, so it's all good. And so he approaches him and stabs him to death. And so now we've got no more Philip. Philip is now dead. And the question then remains, well, number one, who's going to succeed him? Because, hey, you know, there's a, there's a, an open throne. And, uh, well, if it's going to be his family, which of the sons? So this leads inevitably to a war of succession. And amongst his sons, one young boy, a 20-year-old by the name of Alexander, well, through political um, scheming and generally through murdering all of the males in the family, he takes the throne. And so Alexander becomes this young king, about 20 years old, um, young but still very, um, well, he's, he's had some military experience and proves himself to be a military genius. But more than that, Alexander's also had a very good Greek education. In fact, he's had the best education. His personal teacher was Aristotle. So Aristotle, the student of Plato, Plato, the student of Socrates, Aristotle was brought by Philip to Macedonia specifically to tutor his son and his buddies. So he has a private education with he and his other elite mates. So imagine all of the uh, the men of the Macedonian court, all of their sons are getting the absolute best education along with Alexander by the greatest teacher of their generation and one of the greatest thinkers in human history, Aristotle himself. So Alexander has, he's been raised in a palace. He's been raised by a father who is the greatest military leader of his generation and one of the best that Macedonia has ever produced. He's been educated by one of the greatest thinkers of human history. You can imagine the type of product that is, has been produced by the age of 20. I mean, Alexander is an absolutely extraordinary young man with everything going for him, with everything behind him. He is going to be, or at least the expectation on him is that this is going to be a great leader. Well, anyway, one of the other things that Alexander does well, un unlike if you remember Rehoboam, who uh, goes and First of all, he consults his 
father's counsel, the older men in, in the council, and says, no, nah, no, I'm not going to listen to you guys, goes and listens to his buddies. Well, Alexander's got his buddies, all the guys that he's been to school with, with Aristotle, but he goes and brings into his court all of his father's advisors. So he goes and gets the old man and he says, I need your help because, I mean, these guys are the generals of the army. They're very experienced. He recognizes that. And so he knows that he needs their wisdom. But more than that, what he knows, he needs their confirmation. He knows that he needs these older men who are, you know, they were loyal to Philip. And so if they can prove to be loyal to Alexander, they're going to bring the army with them as well. So he knows that he needs them for their support so that or their endorsement so that the armies, but also that the Macedonians themselves will rally behind Alexander. He's still a young man too. And there's still plenty of other powerful elite men in Macedonia who could very well have taken the throne and, um, well, certainly would have wanted to as well. So he still needs their support. So he does that as well. He brings those guys on board and with that brings the army to himself as well as the Greek armies too. One one of the things that happened after Philip's assassination is that some of the Greek city-states like Athens rebelled. They said, well, hang on, we were going to serve Philip, but who's this Alexander upstart? No, no, we're going to take back our autonomy. We're not, we're not loyal to Alexander. We were only loyal to Philip because we had a knife at our throats, but we're not going to take Alexander seriously. So he has to go and prove himself and reestablish what his father had done. And so he goes and he has a few battles with some of the Greek cities. Basically, he brings them all back on because they realize, hey, this is a serious general. He's, he's got all of his father's military training. He's got the army behind him. So eventually he brings together all of his forces. Now there's one other thing that Alexander needs to do. The thing about all of these Greek armies that he's brought along is that they all speak Greek, but there are different dialects of Greek. In the same way you go to a place like Germany, there's a German language, but there are different dialects wherever you, into the different regions you go. And it's, there's, a, there's a lot of overlap with the language, but there's differences as well. In, the, in ancient Greek, you've got different dialects, Ionic, Attic Greek, different versions of Greek that were spoken by the different groups. And that's going to be a problem when you're in battle. If you've got all of these armies speaking if sort of different languages or, or, or not clear to those next to you, that's going to become problematic. So what Alexander needs to do is to bring about some sort of unified language, some sort of what you would call a common Greek. Now, the word common in Greek is the word koine. And so we get as a result of this, what is koine Greek, which ultimately becomes the language that the New Testament is written in. Um, Koine Greek is the is the primary Greek language that's used in what becomes the Greek world, and it comes as a result of Alexander needing to be able to unify his forces so that they can all at least communicate clearly with one another. So that's one of the first things that he really sort of establishes in bringing these forces together. But now it's time to go. Now it's time to cross over into the Persian Empire and take on the Persians, get their revenge on the Persians, sure, um, you know, just have a shot at them, prove himself as a general, you know, basically carry on the legacy of what his father had left him. That's the great expectation. Philip was primed to do this. Now it's Alexander's turn to follow in his father's footsteps. Now's the time to go. It's 334. Let's go. The thing is, however, is that apart from taking on the Persians and just testing your strength against the heavyweight champion, there's no real clear plan. There's no thoughts early on. Maybe there is in Alexander's mind, but there's no record of it that they might ever actually 
conquer the Persians. I mean, the Persian Empire is simply massive. And for all of Alexander's skill and all of the Greeks that he's been able to mass together, he's only got about 40 or 50,000 troops in his force. That's not a big army when you consider that you're dealing with an empire of millions and millions of people who can bring together hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers. A few tens of thousands of, of Greek soldiers, as good as they might be, they're not going to be able to take on the Persian Empire and bring that thing down. That's just not something that's going to happen. So whatever the intentions were for Alexander, just aren't clear. Um, at the very least, the best assumption, or the, the at, I guess at the very least that we could assume Alexander was trying to achieve was just to test himself out and ultimately just to go and get some wealth. In the springtime, kings go off to war so as to enrich themselves. Well, that's really the best assumption that can be made, in a sense. And when you think about, too, who are his colleagues? Well, they're all the guys he went to school with. In a way, they've just finished school. It's almost like a gap year. This is almost like take a year off, travel through Europe, do something, you know, fun. And, you know, then after a year, come back home and then start your real life. That's that's really what this is. And so most, I mean, most campaign seasons will happen between through spring into summer and you go and you go and destroy a few cities and take all the wealth and get, get as many slaves as you can, bring all of that back, sell the slaves, keep all the wealth, buy yourself a farm, get a wife have children and off you go. Your life begins after this military endeavor that you you start off with. And that seems to, that's at the very least, well, what his men would have assumed is going on. We're just going to go for a year, test them out. But no one's thinking we're going to take down the Persian empire. And probably even Alexander wasn't thinking that as well. But then as it turns out, he was really good at this stuff. So he gets to his first city and it's, it's you know, it's sort of a, a Persian outpost, really. It's kind of the first city you're going to come into contact with on the edges of the Persian Empire. And they don't, they're not taking Alexander seriously. They know they've got all the Persian forces behind them. And certainly uh, King, King Xerxes, all the way back in Babylon, he's not taking seriously um, these forces. You're not even probably aware that they're there. He might have a sense that, oh, there's, you know, the Greeks are coming over to pick a fight. Well, that's right. Just crush them. You know, don't even just send, send them home, destroy them, whatever. Um, you know, he, he's not going to take that seriously. Well, as it turns out, they should have because he completely decimates this city. I mean, doesn't just beat the people in there, but just totally destroys it, burns the city to the ground. They had resisted him, and so he needs to prove a point. We're not just going to beat you. We're going to absolutely destroy you. We're, there is no mercy in this first battle. Now, that's going to get the attention of everybody else in the empire. Hang on a second. Number one, these guys can actually fight. And number two, they're merciless. So Alexander rocks up to the next city, and he says, hey, so see that smo smo smoking ruin back there. Do you want to have that happen to you? No? Okay, well then surrender. Now for the people in that city, they say, well, all right, we've got two choices. We can either, um, you know, wait for the Persians to come and help us that we're loyal to. We're paying our tribute to the Persians, but they're a long way away. Or we've got this army literally at our doorstep who are threatening to completely decimate us and wipe us off the face of the map. Maybe we'll just change our loyalties. These guys are the ones that are right in front of us, and maybe we just head, we just take our chances and we um, we serve these guys, pay our tribute to to Alexander. So that's exactly what they do. Well, anyway, this is how the story continues. Alexander just keeps turning up, and some some places 
um, put up a put up a fight. Uh, there's one place in particular called Tyre T Y R E. It's in modern day Lebanon. And just, I'll just sort of say this if you if you're interested, pull up Google Maps, look at Tyre in Lebanon, and what you're going to notice it is it's a little peninsula. It's a little sort of offshoot of of the main landmass. Well, when Alexander got there, it was an island. Right there was water where that little land bridge is now, and they said to Alexander, "Well, hey, you know, you can do your best. See how you see you go crossing that water." And so when he says to them, "Hey, you know, surrender," well, no. What are you going to do? You can't get across this water. So he literally built a land bridge. He literally took got his engineers to take six months to build a land bridge to cross over to the island. When he then went and proceeded to utterly destroy them, crucified people. It was just a massive because, well, they made him take six, take six months out of, his, out of his itinerary, wasted six months of his campaigning to for nothing, for, for, no, for no good ends. And so he utterly destroyed them. And if he hadn't proven his point at the first battle, this certainly proved the point that you don't mess with Alexander's forces. So he shores up that whole sort of western part of the Persian Empire, shores up the coastline so that the Persians can't come and attack from behind. And so he goes all the way down into Egypt. And in doing that, he's effectively conquered um, the western part of uh, of, of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian king says to Alexander at that point, all right, look, I can see that you're a serious contender. How about this? How about we? I give you that land that you've conquered and then you take that and then let's just call it a draw. Let's call it a peace and um, we can just put this all behind us. And Alexander's response is, hang on a second, what do you mean give it to me? I've already taken it. So it kind of sets the tone for for what's about to happen. So third, three thirty four, he's ta- he sort of set out to um, uh, and started this campaign. By three thirty, he's defeated. Sorry, I, I said Xerxes before. I actually mean Darius the third. So he, he defeats Darius in the year three thirty. And so by taking down the Persian king, well, you've taken the Persian Empire. And so it's only now a matter of time. And so over the next ten years, and this is the point we're getting to. Over the next 10 years, literally during Alexander's 20s up until the age of 32, Alexander conquers the Persian Empire. I mean, it is just simply extraordinary what this guy achieves. Uh, by the age of 32, he has literally created the greatest empire the world has ever seen. It's every other empire prior to him has taken centuries to build. He does it in 10 years. He does it just during his 20s. He's his influence was so great. His uh, status was so great that for every great general that came after him, they were measuring themselves against Alexander. Think about Pompey the Great. We're going to meet him later on. Where does the great come from? And we co- he's called Alexander the Great. That's not his name. It's not great is his last name. That's his title. Well, Pompey wants to model himself on that. In fact, when Caesar turned 32, he w- found himself um, in near Alexander's, uh, a tomb for Alexander, and he started to weep because at 32, he'd done nothing. He, he hadn't achieved anything like Alexander had. And so this really sort of set Julius Caesar even on his own journey towards the greatness that he, he was going to achieve. So anyway, we come, uh, we come now to 323, Alexander dies. We don't know how, whether he was poisoned, whether he died from just 10 years of battle scars, from malaria. It could have been any number of different things. We, we just don't know what caused his death. But the thing was, is that he had no succession plan. There was no 
sons to hand the throne over to, um, there was no real idea of, of what was going to happen next. Now we're going to look at that next week, you know, what happens next in the story. But what is really clear is the legacy that Alexander has left behind. And you, you might be wondering through this episode, why have I spent so much time talking about Alexander the Great? I thought I, was, I thought we were talking about Jesus. Well, Alexander is so pivotal to our story because what Alexander does is that he creates the cultural world that Jesus exists in. This is the, this is the world that Jesus is, is going to be raised in, at least culturally. Politically, it's Roman, but culturally, it's in every way Greek. Because what Alexander does, is, or, or what his conquest ultimately results in, is that Greek now becomes the lingua franca of the region. It used to be Aramaic, now it's Greek. Greek is the language of politics. Greek is the second language of everybody in this area. Because if you want to um, be in connection with the powers, the Greek powers, the Greek authorities, you need to speak Greek. But what you need, the reason why you're learning Greek is because the other thing that the Greeks do is they start, is they establish schools. They establish gymnasiums through all of these cities so that they can teach Greek culture, so that they can spread this incredible Greek culture stemming all the way back to Socrates. So what, what Alexander has had infused into him by his teacher, Aristotle, he wants to spread that as well. He sees the Greeks as being the most sophisticated people. He wants that to go out into the world. He, and so he, establishes gymnasiums, they, they set up, they, they bring Greek gods into the region, so we're starting to worship Greek gods. In fact, here's a fascinating little, little fact. Alexander's empire spread down into India. There are still elements or there's still traces of, of Greek culture going all the way back to Alexander, even in India. But one of the interesting little facts is that it's during about sort of the third and second centuries BC that the we, we see what emer, we see emerging statues of Buddha. So we think about statues of Buddha. I mean, they're just a dime a dozen, right? Everywhere you go, everyone's they're, they're, everyone's selling statues of Buddha because they're so they're a nice part of your decor. The, the original intention of Buddhism was to never have a statue of Buddha, right? You don't need a statue of Buddha. Everyone knows who he is, but it's not the point. Like, you, you don't, you're not worshipping him as the man, right? So you, they never had this idea of, of having statues. But after Alexander came through, they started to see the need to have this because the god Apollo who was one of the patron gods of Alexander, well, Apollo was becoming so influential and his statues were so influential right down into India that the Buddha said, we, start, we need to set up our own statues of Buddha, otherwise he's going to be completely consumed or, and overrun by this Greek god Apollo. So, I mean, the impact that he was having ex extending right down into um, into India and still being seen today as a result of, of what Alexander had achieved. What Alexander also does in order to help to foster this spread of culture is that he builds his own cities. He builds cities that he names after himself, cities named Alexandria. So one of the, the most famous Alexandria is the one built in, in Egypt. Um, Alexandria ultimately becomes the seat of the Egyptian kingdom for reasons we'll see next week. But he establishes about 20 Alexandrias throughout this empire. And what he builds in them is theatres and gymnasiums and you know schoolhouses, in other words. He wants to build these outposts of Greek culture so as to spread the culture, but also to create these beautiful, booming cities that are going to be attractive to the people around where they can come and experience that Greek culture. So again, why would you want to 
um, participate in this Greek culture? Well, because you want power. You want to be to get in well with the Greek authorities and with the Greek uh, power that's over you. You've got to be Greek. You've got to speak Greek, but also you've got to think Greek because Greek represents, uh, the language represents this whole way of thinking, this whole Greek worldview that they're introducing. It's all one and the same thing. And you can't understand the worldview without understanding the language. And so you can't access it, the, the, the worldview without the language. So everyone wants to learn Greek and be infused with this because that's the, that's the path to success. That's what this new world is about. So what does this have to do with the Jews? Well, you can imagine uh, very understandably that what Jerusalem and, and what was the land of, of Israel has now become part of this Greek empire. They're, they're Greek. But more than that, all of the Jewish people who have been spread and established themselves in the diaspora throughout the Persian Empire, living in these cities, they're all now in Greek cities. Now, the Greek temples are popping up everywhere, Greek theatres, Greek schools, everything is becoming Greek. And whatever world, the, the, the cities and the cultures that they were a part of now becoming Greek, well, that's what they're working against. But this, this Greek worldview is so much more than just the belief in some different gods. There's a whole cultural um the whole cultural package that comes along with it, a whole way of seeing the world and, and understanding what it means to be human. This is what they're now challenged by. At the very least, they're needing to learn Greek. Kids that are born now in this Greek empire are going to be learning Greek. Uh, they're going to be even tempted to go to the gymnasium. Parents send their kids to the gymnasium to give them the sort of educations that they need to be able to advance themselves in these Greek in this new Greek culture. So Greek is going is is just permeating into every part of life to the extent that if you remember, I said uh, previously that the Greek themselves, Greeks themselves despised circumcision. They thought it was the most disgusting thing anyone could do to themselves. To the so much so that for Jewish, some Jewish men, in order to fit into this Greek world, were having a procedure called an epispasm. They were literally reversing their circumcisions. Now I don't even want to venture into how that would work, but that's what they were doing, so that they could fit into this Greek world. But perhaps the most important change that occurs, perhaps the most important development that happens for our story is that now these new generations are born into the Greek world. They only speak Greek. They certainly don't know Hebrew. They don't know Aramaic. How do they read the Bible? Bibles are in Hebrew. The, the scriptures are in, uh, in Aramaic. How do they read it? Well, they need a Greek translation. They need a Bible that they can read. And so what they what emerges as a result of this is what we call the Septuagint, literally the Greek, well, not this, not literally, but the, the Greek translation of the Bible. This is the new Bible. In fact, this is the Bible that Paul reads, the Bible, that the scriptures that Jesus read. And I say a Bible, I'm talking about a physical book like you can imagine. I'm talking about the scrolls and, and these documents. But that's the texts that have been read by the disciples, by Jesus, by Paul. They're reading Greek Bibles because of... Well, this is now the primary translation throughout this part of the world. So we've got a Greek world now, and this is what is going to lead into our story in the Gospels and, and later on in, in, into the New Testament. But you can get a sense already that the cultural pressure 
again, under the Persians, you don't get it. You don't get a Persian culture trying to impose itself onto its subjects, and certainly not onto the Jewish people. They can still. It's easier for them to maintain their identity. This is a different world now. This Greek world. It comes with social and cultural pressure, pressure to conform to the entire suite of Greek ideas and Greek gods, everything that comes along with that. And so to fit in at the, at the bare minimum, you've got to speak the language and at least have an understanding of how, a, of how this Greek world thinks. And so to do that, you need something of an education into that. So the question then becomes, how do you assimilate? How do you fit into this world? And particularly when the pressure starts to get put onto you um, to conform or get out, how do you respond to that? And that's particularly going to be the case, well, you would imagine through the diaspora, but even down in Jerusalem. And that's the that's the story, well, that's where this story is going to go to next week. What what are some of the, not just the challenges, but how does this really come to a head in, uh, in, in the Jewish world? All right, so we're going to cover that next week. But again, thank you so much for joining me this week. Um, I really hope you have a great week ahead and I look forward to seeing you next week. All the best. Thank you.